0: We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. I'm Manisha Sinha, and um, I teach history at the University of Connecticut. Uh, I'm a specialist in the history of slavery, abolition, and the Civil War, um, and the African-American experience in this country generally. you know, for a very long time, for over 20 years at the University of Massachusetts uh, before joining the University of Connecticut as the Draper Chair in American History. So I uh, wrote a book on uh, pro-slavery thought and the coming of the Civil War uh, in antebellum South Carolina called The Counter-Revolution of Slavery. Um, And that book was published in 2000. Um, and it was, in fact, featured in the New York Times uh, 1619 project in one of the articles. Um, my second book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, I should say second monograph because I have uh, edited and co-authored other books. Um, so the second monograph is called The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. Um, it's a history of the abolition movement from the American Revolution to the Civil War that centers the experience of African Americans and that centers African Americans in the history of abolition. Um, Right now, I'm writing a book on reconstruction, uh, which I call The Reconstruction of American Democracy after the Civil War. Uh, And it looks at many of the issues that we are concerned about today. You know, the Supreme Court has been crucial uh, in the history of black freedom and black rights. Um, Unfortunately, the Supreme Court sometimes has, you know, uh, acted in a way that has been detrimental for black rights. So if you think about, you know, like the Dred Scott decision, in which Chief Justice Roger Taney said that. African-Americans had no rights that a white man was bound to respect. Or you think of Plessy versus Ferguson, which gave the kind of green light to racial segregation and Jim Crow uh, in the post-war South. Um, These decisions were extremely harmful uh, for uh, black people. And on the whole, the Supreme Court has not been very good when it comes to black rights the exception, of course, is the Warren Court and Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 when, for a change, uh, the Supreme Court actually acted on behalf of black rights. There are some other instances, too, when the Supreme Court uh, struck down poll taxes, uh, for instance, just before that. Um, but on the whole, the Supreme Court has a checker history when it comes to black rights. Um And sometimes they have made decisions that have been uh, positively bad, uh, like Dred Scott, like Plessy versus Ferguson. But this hasn't deterred African-Americans from using the law as an instrument for liberation. You know, starting with freedom suits that enslaved people um, sort of launched against their enslavers, you know, right from the colonial era, uh, down to the historic fights led by the NACP, the late great Thurgood Marshall, um, you know, against segregation uh, for voting rights. Um, African Americans have always appealed to the law uh, in order to assert their rights and in order to have laws and amendments uh, to implement them. Okay. okay. Now, um There were some cases
1: that preceded the um, Dred Scott case that involved African-Americans, enslaved African-Americans, who um, used the court successfully. Could we go into what would lead Tanny to make that terrible
0: decision? Yes, you know, um, there were many instances in the North, especially where African-Americans had sued for their freedoms, especially in New England. Uh, and in fact, black women, interestingly enough, took the lead in this, in, in suing for their freedom. And and the most famous case, of course, was that of Mumbet Elizabeth Freeman, who successfully sued for her own freedom, but also that her case and that of another enslaved man actually led to Massachusetts declaring slavery to be inconsistent with its state constitution in 1783. So for all good purposes, it abolished slavery. So, you know, my students would always be um, startled when I told them that, you know, freedom was not a gift handed down to black people, that black people had actually contested for their freedom. And certainly in the state of Massachusetts, prime movers uh, when it came to, declaring slavery abolished in the Commonwealth. Um, so there were many uh, you know, African-Americans who sued for their freedom. Uh, this happened particularly in some of the border slave states in the antebellum era, like in the mid 19th century. Uh, for instance, in St. Louis, Missouri, you had hundreds of cases of African-Americans suing for their freedom on various grounds. A common one was travel to a free state um, that, uh, you know, their enslavers might have taken them to the north, to one of the free states, and and kept them there illegally for a few years before coming back to the south. And interestingly enough, even though Missouri was a slave state, many of these enslaved people had actually won their freedom in the state courts in uh, St. Louis. So when Greg Scott and Harriet Scott, his wife, decide to sue for their freedom on the basis of the fact that their enslavers had taken them to Illinois, which was a free state, and then gotten them back. In the 1850s, they were following this tradition of suing for your freedom. And their case, of course, then went right up to the Supreme Court. Uh, Harriet Scott is dropped, Dred Scott is the only plaintiff who's mentioned in the Supreme Court case. And the Supreme Court at that time was dominated by Southerners like Tawney or Southern sympathizing judges. And they rendered this uh, probably one of the worst decisions in American history. I remember Sarah Palin, who was the vice presidential candidate uh, of John McCain, being asked, what are some of the worst decisions made by the Supreme Court? And she couldn't even name one. And I always tell my students, just remember Dred Scott. So if you ever run for office, you can name it. Um, Mm -hmm. So the Supreme Court then, you know, sort of makes this decision and says uh, that not only does the federal government not have the right to regulate slavery in federal territories, but that black people were not citizens of this country and therefore had no right to sue for their freedom like Dred Scott. So there's in a way overturning this long precedent of black people using the law to assert their rights Uh, and this is common in the north too where many fugitive slaves found themselves in northern courtrooms using whatever protections they had in the law uh, in order to win their freedom and so in a way Drab Scott was a a staffing decision it led Abraham Lincoln to issue his most memorable condemnation of slavery And it also was a swipe against the Republican Party when it was the party of anti-slavery because their platform was non-extension of slavery and having the federal government um, rule against slavery um, Mm -hmm. in areas under its authority. So it was... I have one quick question. Yeah. So ahead, I'd like to jump
1: in real quickly. the okay. makeup of the Supreme Court doing the tanny decision the Scott decision um was it as volatile uh was it as controversy as what we just experienced in the last two years, and what, you know the nomin the nominees and how the justices were nominated can you do you know the particulars of how that came about, and how long was Taney on the on the uh court?
0: Yes, Tony had been on the court for a very long time. Uh, Mm -hmm. At that time, he, you know, had been appointed to the court uh, by um, Andrew Jackson. And Mm -hmm. so he had been there for a a long time. There were other justices there. Uh, Some were southerners or southern sympathizing judges, southerners like John A. Campbell uh, Robert C. Greer, who was very sympathizing towards Southerners um, during the Christiana riot in Pennsylvania against the rendition of um, a fugitive slave. He had declared all attempts to violate the fugitive slave law sedition. Uh, you can hear that language again today being used uh, by uh uh our so-called Attorney General, uh, Bill Barr. He uses the term sedition to describe any peaceful protest uh, against unjust and illegal actions by the Trump administration. Um, there were also other Northern judges like John McLean and Benjamin Curtis. Uh, and interestingly enough, they all dissented in this decision. And the reason why they dissented was because they knew that black people were citizens in the North. Um, They did not have all the rights of citizenship, for sure. Uh, Only the handful of New Englands, uh, uh, except in Connecticut, gave black men the right to vote Uh, at that time. Most northern states did not, but they were still recognized as citizens. Um, You know, they were not enslaved people. So they dissented um, in this decision. And it's interesting that Curtis dissented even because, he was extremely conservative when it came to Black lives. Um, Great. So, well, that's you know, an excellent background of of the uh,
1: judges at that during that era. Now, so you mentioned the Christiana riot. That is very important in history. Would you delve more into that riot?
0: Yes, absolutely. So, the the fugitive slave law was passed in 1850, the new federal fugitive slave law, and one of the reasons why it was Was because uh, there was so much resistance to the old fugitive slave law of 1793 in southern states, sorry, in northern states. Uh, Many northern states uh, resisted rendition. Uh, They argued that their laws of freedom superseded southern laws of slavery if there were escaped slaves coming up to the north. Um, so the so Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 as part of the compromise of 1850 between the Free North and the Slave South. And one of the first cases to be legislated under this act was the incident in Christiana, Pennsylvania, where, um, you know, there was a, a Maryland slaveholder who came with a U.S. marshal to recapture four of his escaped slaves. What he did know is that that area of Pennsylvania was a hotbed of resistance to the fugitive slave law, led by a a black abolitionist who was an escaped slave himself, William Parker. And they had a lot of sympathy among local uh, white anti-slavery Quakers, too. So when the marshals came, these people put up a fight, uh, and they managed to actually act in self-defense And it led to the death of Gosuch, the the, the slaveholder, who had come to recover his slaves. Uh, Parker then escaped to Canada. Uh, But other people were indicted in uh, in this case. uh, And they were indicted for sedition uh, because they had opposed the fugitive slave law. And um, interestingly enough, when the case came up, and one of the lawyers actually was the famous radical Republican, Thaddeus Stevens, who would argue you know after the Civil War for dividing land amongst uh, former slaves, um they got up scot free and all white jury let them go because they said they were acting in self defense and you know when was the last time that happened in the u s uh, but you really had in the eighteen fifties in the north people were were sick of the way in which what they called the slave power was trying to um, implement slave laws in the northern free states, that they were somehow trying to nationalize uh, slavery. I think I have you on Zoom now, Leslie. So here I am uh, on Zoom as well. Um, In any case, so the Christiana riot is really important because it is one of the first instances of defiance uh, to the –
2: uh, In a way, the Republicans today really do remind me a lot of the Southern Democrats before the Civil War. As I told you, everything we know about the political parties today, we should simply switch for the 19th century. Um, you know, uh, the 1860 elections was extremely crucial because you had Abraham Lincoln and you had two Democratic candidates against him because the Democratic Party itself split even though it was really moving more and more towards, um, you know, uh, the South, the Democratic Party throughout the 1850s. In the end, even Northern Democrats couldn't stomach some of the demands that Southern slaveholders were making of them on the eve of the presidential election. Um, You know, literally overreaching that Southern slaveholders had done throughout the 1850s beginning with the passing of a very draconian Fugitive Slave Act, the Dred Scott decision, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which opened territories north of the Missouri Compromise Line to slavery. So they were really overreaching. And the Republican Party today Um, under Trump is behaving in exactly the same way. They're shameless. They invite foreign interference in our elections. They are willing to tear gas peaceful protesters. Um, Recently, the so-called attorney general, William Barr, who has to be one of the worst attorney generals uh, this country has ever had, has even said that he would um, uh, declare or has declared, certain cities, New York, Portland, and Seattle, anarchist cities, whatever he means by that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the way in which the Republican Party behaves today and the way in which Trump behaves today, that he is the president just of white people in the red states and not of the entire United States, is a lot like the way Southern Democrats behaved. Uh, They saw themselves as simply the defenders of slavery. And... uh, If it came to choosing between slavery and the American Republic, they chose slavery. So on Lincoln's election, uh, the deep South states, one after the other, seceded from the Union and thus began the Civil War. Uh, And so, you know, the Republican Party today is behaving like that. Trump is saying, you know, he's already calling into question the legitimacy of the 2020 election. He says if he loses, it's quite clear that the Democrats Uh, have cheated. Sounds a lot like Southern slaveholders saying they won't accept the results of the presidential election. They won't accept the result of the election of an anti-slavery man to the presidency, rather than accept that they would secede from the union and destroy American democracy. So I see a lot of parallels and similarities between Trump and Southern slaveholders of the 1850s. It was uh, William Henry Gist, right? Right. He was from South Carolina. I know my first book is on South Carolina and he was a secessionist from South Carolina. And you're right, you know, the South Carolinians were leading secessionists. I mean, they wanted to secede, at least a sizable portion of them wanted to secede already in the 1830s during the nullification crisis under Jackson. Andrew Jackson put them down. Um, And so, you know, Trump likes to say that he is like Andrew Jackson. He's nothing like Andrew Jackson because uh, Jackson, who had a lot of flaws, he was a slaveholder. He had, uh, you know, fought against Native Americans, deprived them of their lands. uh, But he was popularly elected. He believed in the white man's democracy. Trump doesn't believe in any democracy. He's more like the Southern Democrats of the 1850s mm-hmm. who would rather destroy democracy rather than let go of slavery. And people like William, William Henry Gist and others argued that, you know, states' rights was really a concept of state sovereignty so that if the federal government passed a law that you did not like or a president was elected through a democratic process outlined in the Constitution that they did not like, uh, they were going to, in fact, simply uh, secede from the union. Correct. And that's exactly what they did. Yes. So are you related to him? <laughs> He's a white man. I know. African-American.
3: Um, he was not a guest. He hijacked the name. His name was um, Bobo. Oh. A clown. He's a clown. Uh, and when you mentioned um, Trump will wanting to be compared to Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was a military man.
2: Mm -hmm. He did
3: not hide in a bunker. So
2: exactly, He didn't call uh, United States armed forces, losers and suckers. Correct. Um, He certainly, uh, you know, he was the hero of the battle of New Orleans against the British, commonly seen as the second American war of independence. Uh, You're right. Uh, Trump is more of a blowhard and a bully and a coward when it comes to military action. And
3: I don't think Andrew Jackson would appreciate him even comparing himself to him. Even exactly. Though
2: he, yeah. uh, the president whom Trump really resembles is Andrew Johnson. And mm-hmm. I've written a bit about this in the New York Times in an op-ed uh, during Trump's impeachment. Um, you know, Andrew Johnson became president after abraham lincoln and he was a white supremacist who really tried to undo the gains of the civil war and emancipation and black rights uh, and so uh trump is actually that's the andrew that trump resembles in a way uh many people refer to Bleeding kansas as kind of a dress rehearsal uh, for the civil war uh because when the kansas nebraska act is passed in 1854 uh it as i said rescinded uh, the the sort of demarcation between slavery and freedom uh, that had been decided by the Missouri Compromise Line uh, of 1820. And so when that act is passed, that's when the Republican Party is founded, the Whig Party completely disintegrates. Um, and in Kansas, of course, uh, that act was passed by the Democratic Party of the 1850s by Stephen Douglas, uh, who was Lincoln's opponent for the Senate uh, elections um, and uh, what Southerners try to do is they try to force slavery into Kansas, even though free state immigrants outnumber by a large number these pro-slavery immigrants to Kansas. That's where John Brown begins his war against slavery in earnest also. Um, and that's when Northern Democrats, led by Stephen Douglas, realize that Southerners will even destroy the white man's democracy in order to have slavery. Um, and that's when Douglas, Stephen Douglas, who was the author of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, you know, steps away from this coalition and says, no, white immigrants to Kansas should have the right to decide uh, to vote slavery up or down, you know, whether they're to have slavery there or not. Lincoln and the anti-slavery Republican Party's position is that no territory should have slavery, uh, that it was the federal government's duty to ban slavery. So even white men should not have the right to vote that. But Southerners were not satisfied with either solution. They wanted a minority of slaveholders to actually make sure that Kansas becomes a slave state. Um, and you have during the territorial elections in Kansas these so called border ruffians uh, invading Kansas and every election cycle from Missouri, which was a slave state mm-hmm. under this very pro slavery band called David Atchison, and they would steal the elections mm-hmm. so you can see how American democracy and the issue of slavery have always been tied together. And today it is American democracy and racial equality. Rather than have Black citizenship, rather than recognize Black equality, or even the historic win of the first African American president, Republicans are determined even to destroy our democracy so that we don't have that. Uh, And they are behaving, as I said, exactly like slaveholders did throughout the 1850s. About
3: Black citizenship. Do you think it's a diversionary tactic? Because during that time, the 1850 gold rush, and you have Lincoln who was representing, you know, landless white men. He looked at the gold rush as an opportunity for white people to get on a higher rung in economic ladder. So do you really think it's about black citizenship or the fascist government not really wanting to share the apple pie with the majority of their poor white citizens. And we're just being used as a diversionary tactic as far as
2: citizens, our citizenship and so forth. So that's an interesting question because you're right. The fight for Black citizenship is really a fight that African-Americans are waging, that abolitionists are waging. Um, The anti-slavery coalition is a free soil party. It is against the expansion of slavery into the West so that slavery ultimately dies down. They're not for black equality. And during the Lincoln-Douglas debate, Lincoln is always being race-baited by Douglas as a person who believes in black citizenship. So he has to keep saying, no, no, no. I think slavery is wrong, but I'm not for black citizenship. In fact, H. Ford Douglas, a black abolitionist from Illinois, asks Lincoln to sign a petition for black rights and Lincoln refuses to do so. Um, Because he knows that his political life uh, is in Illinois, which contained a lot of extremely racist people, a lot of migrants from the South, um, that, that that would be the end of his political career. And he tells the border slave states, if you accept gradual emancipation, we will compensate you, not the slaves, but the slaveholders, and we will colonize free blacks out of the country. But all his attempts in doing that fails. And just before issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, you can see that Lincoln gives up on the idea of colonization, mainly because of the pushback he gets from black people, from abolitionists who had always been against colonization and African-Americans. And interestingly enough, uh, after emancipation, when you had black soldiers serving in the Union Army, That is what seems to make a big difference to Lincoln. He feels that black men who have served in the Union Army deserve the rights of citizenship. He remains the the only or the first American president to publicly endorse black citizenship. So you are right, it's a minority aim before the Civil War, but the revolutionary events of the Civil War itself brings many anti-slavery people who were free soilers, who were non-extensionists, to abolition and then from abolition uh, to black rights. Uh, Mm -hmm. As far as the gold rush is concerned, that takes place in the 1840s, late 1840s in California. Um, There are though a few who actually did go to California in the gold rush. Um, A famous example would be John Jacobs, Harriet Jacobs' brother. Uh, Mm -hmm. She was a, a fugitive slave who famously wrote her slave narrative, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Her brother, John S. Jacobs, actually joined the Gold Rush. There were a few African-Americans from the North who went there. But you're right, the West as a whole was very hostile to people of color. It was very hostile to African-Americans. John Brown found that in Kansas, many of the free staters who wanted Kansas to be a free state would not endorse Black rights or Black citizenship. So it has been a really long and hard fight uh, to establish Black equality in this country. And it continues to be hard because it's not been fully established. We still live with the afterlives of slavery and racism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are still people who do not respect Black rights. Right. And that's why we have a movement today for Black lives. That's why we have Black Lives Matter. Okay. Lincoln also signs off on the establishment of the Freedmen's Bureau Act which is the Bureau for uh, Freedmen, Refugees, and Abandoned Lands, as slaveholders had abandoned their plantations and left. And the Freedmen's Bureau starts actually dividing up land amongst enslaved people for non-payment of taxes by slaveholders, and Lincoln goes along with that plan. But there is no wide-scale redistribution of land. Um, An attempt is passed to pass the southern homestead land, to give former slaves land. So there are various efforts in play. Unfortunately, what happens, of course, is that Lincoln is assassinated soon after the war ends. And his successor, Andrew Johnson, as I said, is a white supremacist, a racist. He began as a poor white, but ended up as a slaveholder himself. Uh, and he was very resentful, usually, of the rich planter classes. Uh, But as president, he works completely for their favor. He returns their land to them. He forces Black people who had gotten the land, many places where they had been cultivating crops for a year or two, he forces them to leave those lands. And the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, consisting of people who sympathize with the former slaves in many cases, are forced to carry out his orders because he's the president. So that was a real tragedy that Johnson became president and he was able to uh, undo these very initial tentative steps in terms of land redistribution. Now, of course, Johnson is such a racist. He also opposes the Civil Rights Act of 1866. He is impeached like Trump. Um, And of course, he is thrown out of the presidency. Ulysses Grant becomes the Republican president. Uh, But by that time, the only people who are continuing to ask for land redistribution are indeed former slaves, radical Republicans, and abolitionists. Most moderates and conservatives don't want to do that. So a golden opportunity was lost at the end of the Civil War to redistribute land amongst the slaves. Would it have actually helped them if they had lost political power, which they eventually did with the fall of reconstruction is also worth thinking about because we know of course of many third world countries where land is redistributed but you know we still get a peasant economy Mm -hmm. uh where like in jamaica after emancipation or in other asian countries where people are free but they till increasingly unfertile, increasingly small amounts of land. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the fact still remains that some recompense was surely due to enslaved people. Um, In the United States, not only has there been no compensation for generations of stolen labor, but also, you know, no, no real apology, no real truth and reconciliation commission, even as in South Africa after apartheid. Uh, and I think that's a reckoning that the nation actually still has to deal with. And that is why we still have these entrenched problems of systemic racism and police brutality. Uh, these are the afterlives of slavery and racism that still haunt this country.
3: And you mentioned it, um, the compromises. The first compromise for black citizenship was the three-fifth clause. Mm-hmm. And When we talk about the three-fifths clause, a lot of people get um, the the meaning of the three-fifths clause confused. Can you explain what the three-fifths clause is and how it connects to mass incarceration
2: today? Are there parallels? Have we made any strides? So the three-fifths clause, of course, was a constitutional compromise, which counted three-fifths of the slave population for representation in Congress. So it gave slaveholders extra political power in Congress for enslaving black people because black people did not have the right to vote, right? Uh, and they wanted the slave population to be you know, uh, counted as a whole at a five fifths level. Northerners didn't want enslaved population to be counted at all because enslaved people did not have the right to vote. They were not citizens. So why should they be counted for representation? So the three-fifths compromise um, said precisely that. It didn't say that a Black person is three-fifths of a human being, which a lot of people say, but that is wrong. Uh, That is not true. Uh, What the Constitution basically says, that three-fifths of all other persons, which is Black people, will be counted for purposes of representation. And this gives, of course, it gives southern slaveholders a lock in Congress. It gives them a lock on the Supreme Court, a lock on the presidency. You know, before Lincoln, an overwhelming majority of the presidents were slaveholders because of the Three Fifths Clause. They got extra representation in Congress, extra representation in the Electoral College. Now, the Three Fifths Clause is no longer valid, of course, after the 13th Amendment. Uh, that abolished slavery. So it's kind of a dead clause today of the United States Constitution because the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution after the Civil War completely remake the Constitution. Uh, the 13th Amendment, which uh, freed uh, enslaved people, um, had a criminal exception to it that you would be free unless you are duly charged and convicted of a crime that you have committed. Now this criminal exception in the 13th amendment was not something that it's anti-slavery writers put in purposely uh, to re-enslave black people. Again, that's a misconception. Most of the people who wrote and were behind the 13th amendment genuinely wanted emancipation. But this criminal exception gave Southern whites a loophole to actually re-enslave in a a virtual way uh, African-Americans by criminalizing Black freedom, by developing a convict labor lease system where Black people were arrested uh, for uh, minor or sometimes even just made up crimes so that their labor could still be used uh, in the lease labor system, historians have called the system worse than slavery, or slavery by another name. In the 20th century, we see this process of criminalizing Blackness continue with mass incarceration, with uh, what um, Michelle Alexander has called the new Jim Crow, uh, where Black men have, are targeted and are imprisoned and incarcerated in very high numbers, Uh, And this is a highly profitable system. There's a private uh, prison industrial complex that actually profits still from black bodies. Uh, And in a way it is really a legacy of slavery. Um, So it's important to understand that, sometimes we think we have won that fight but we have to refight those, some very basic um, ideas about black freedom and black rights again and again, it seems to me. And today we are confronted with a really regressive federal government headed by a man who makes no bones about his racism, his admiration for the Confederacy, for slaveholders, right? Uh, And so we, we really need to actually defeat these forces in American history because they have always been there and it seems to me we have to contend with them in each age anew. you. It, it does. But it seems as though during the slave era,
3: um, even though our ancestors could not read or write, that they were more in tune and more active without citizenship with the process, the legal process. So when we talk about Sojourner Truth in her battle with the legal system.
2: Explain. Yeah, so, you know, we today the experience of most Black people with the law and law enforcement is repressive, it's punitive, it's, you know, police brutality, it's mass incarceration, but in the 18th and 19th century, you can also see how African-Americans use the law as an instrument of liberation through these true free freedom suits and fighting for their freedom, uh, through evoking many of the rights of English common law like habeas corpus or um, uh, the Bill of Rights of the Constitution in order to uh, win and safeguard their freedom. So Sojourner Truths is a great example because she was enslaved in New York. People don't seem to know that there was slavery in the North also until the American Revolution. And uh, she's freed by the New York emancipation laws, which are gradual emancipation laws that tended to free children of slaves after they reach majority. And many northern slaveholders try to get by this law by simply selling their slaves down south. So northern states had to pass more laws saying that this is uh, criminal, that this is wrong. You cannot sell a northern slave who is due for freedom down south in order to avoid emancipation. And uh, what Sojourner Truth's enslavers did was they sent her son down south to Alabama, and she had to sue in order to rescue him from them and to rescue him from slavery in Alabama. And there were some Quaker anti-slavery lawyers who helped her do that. Uh, but she, like generations of African-American men and women resorted to the court system in order to win their rights and rescue her son. Her son, uh, Peter, I think his name was finally, she is reunited with him. And the sad part is that he doesn't recognize his own mother. Uh, but the fact remains that he she did. I'm sorry, my phone seems to keep Going off, um, but uh, the fact remains that she is reunited with him, and that she did fought, uh, did that she did fight uh, in order to win his freedom. And of course, by the 1850s, she emerges as a big spokeswoman for abolition and women's rights in the North.
3: Now, yesterday you mentioned that the Mary Mission Society um, mm-hmm. helped her uh, explain what the Mary Mission Society was, and
2: a vigilance committee, these different types of societies existed. So the New York manum a lot of this information that I'm giving you is actually in my book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, which looks at the period from the revolution to the American Civil War. So if any of your listeners or viewers are interested, they can always get a copy of this book and get a really detailed look at this Um, You know, and I hear even though the book is large, that it is readable. It was uh, long listed for the National Book Award for nonfiction. So it's not heavy reading like an academic book. But basically, the New York Manumission Society was one of those early abolition societies, uh, predominantly white uh, during the Revolutionary Era that fought first for emancipation laws in the northern states, and then they fought to enforce them. Um, And a lot of the early northern founding fathers like Alexander Hamilton, uh, John Jay, Benjamin Franklin, lend the prestige of their names to many of these abolition and manumission societies.
3: Okay. And the Vigilance Committee, when we talk about New York abolitionism. So the
2: Vigilance Committee comes about a little later, though you even had in the earlier time period members of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, which existed at the same time as the New York Manumission Society. There's a man by the name of Isaiah Hopper who was really involved in going down to the streets, being connected to the Black community and to Black leaders like Richard Allen and Absalom Jones. Uh, of the Ame Church um, that was attacked actually in Charleston in 2015 in that massacre. It was an old Black abolitionist church. Um, and he would actually go and take what we would call today street action. You know, mm-hmm. he would go and, and confront slaveholders and slave catchers trying to illegally kidnap uh, either free or escaped slaves back to the South. And so his actions became a model for the New York Vigilance Committee that was founded in 1837. Its most famous member was uh, David Ruggles, the Black abolitionist, Uh, and he was from Connecticut, uh, and he formed this committee in New York. And he did that where they would confront slaveholders and law enforcement authorities on, you know, different African-Americans being apprehended by law enforcement. enforcement as runaway slaves or sometimes free blacks just being kidnapped uh, into slavery as in the case of Solomon Northrop. Uh, David Ruggles is the same man, of course, who helped Frederick Douglass when he escaped to the North as a fugitive slave. So he's really important in developing these tactics, of direct action of confronting slaveholders, uh, not just through legal means, but also like literally confronting them um, and, and, and you know, opposing them in mass action. You know, at a drop of a hat, the Vigilance Committee could call hundreds of Black men and women to storm courts or go to the streets and confront uh, slave catchers. Um, and the only picture we have of David Bruggles actually is of him with Barney Coase, who was a, a lawyer for the New York Manumission Society uh, and um, with Isaac Hopper, the man who invented these tactics. Uh, They show the three of them confronting a Virginian slaveholder by the name of John Darg, uh, who had come to apprehend his runaway slave. So, you know, I have actually a picture. That picture is, oh, I'm sorry again, my phone keeps ringing. But that picture is actually reproduced in my book. And so I would encourage you and and your listeners. I wish you had um, your book to to hold up. Uh, (laughs) What is the name of the book? yeah because the slave scores a history of right. abolition. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, the paperback copies are available there. Um, you can also get it on Kindle and in audiobook form.
3: Well, now these, these are the last two questions. When you talk about these different kidnappings, um, does it not seem similar to what is going on with these um, the mass amount of people who are being murdered at the hands of the police? So it reminds me of all of the, the men from the 1800s who um, caused uh, different legal battles. As far as the Christiana riot you mentioned yesterday, we had Burns, Anthony Burns. There's so many of them. Those yeah. names are parallel to the names that we hear today with George Floyd. So when you talk about the Christianity riot, um, explain how does that look so similar to today?
2: So, you know, um, you know, there are parallels. They're not exactly the same, Uh, Mm -hmm. but you're right. What the fugitive slave laws do is they criminalize black freedom and they allow law enforcement and even ordinary white citizens Mm -hmm. to apprehend black people whenever they wanted to as suspects, as fugitives from the law, as runaway slaves. Um, And that creates a huge sexual p- problem between the North and the South. There are many white northerners, especially abolitionists who oppose this. So it's a lot like the Black Lives Matter movement that begins with African-Americans and a few white sympathizers. But by now the movement for black lives is this big movement that has galvanized hundreds and thousands of people onto the streets. So similarly with Christiana Riot, with Anthony Burns case, the uh, there were other cases of John Price in Oberlin, the Joshua Glover case in Wisconsin. You know, it galvanized hundreds of people on the streets in the 1850s uh, against the fugitive slave law. So, in a way, uh, you're right. This uh, criminalization of blackness in in law, in by law enforcement, is something that is a sorry legacy of slavery.
3: Mm-hmm. And just briefly tell us a story about the Christiana riot, that's right around the corner from Jersey.
2: Yeah, so, <clears throat> excuse me, the Christiana riot actually, uh, again, this is described in great detail in my book, so I won't go into that depth, but I'll just say that um, there was a Maryland slaveholder by the name of Edward Bosuch, who with US federal marshals uh, tried to recover his uh, four runaway slaves Uh, Many of them who were hiding with a black abolitionist who was a runaway slave himself, William Parker, in um, Christiana, Pennsylvania. And when he and the federal marshals approach Parker's home, uh, they fight back. They refuse to go. Uh, And there's a gun battle, an open battle, which results in the death of the Maryland slaveholder who had come to recover his slaves. Uh, And Parker, meanwhile, through the Underground Railroad, escapes to Canada, On the way, he has the gun with which he had purportedly killed the slaveholder and he left it with Frederick Douglass. He stayed with Douglass in Rochester Mm -hmm. for a night before escaping. But the other people who were apprehended in this case, what was interesting is uh, that their case, which is fought by Thaddeus Stevens and other white lawyers, Thaddeus Stevens, of course, goes on to Um, become a leading radical Republican or leading advocate of redistribution of land amongst former slaves and a leading advocate of reconstruction. So Thaddeus Stevens argues their case and all those people who had been apprehended uh, are actually freed. They're let go of by the jury, even though the charge was for sedition, for, uh, you know, taking up arms against the United States government in order to defend these fugitive slaves and this is just one of the many stories in my book I and mean, there are hundreds of remarkable stories of black resistance to slavery uh, and the way in which the abolition movement sort of stepped in um, to help African Americans win their freedom and secure their rights uh, and that's in a way the reason why I wrote that book because I felt that historians had tended to ignore that Mm-hmm. Uh, they had tended to ignore that as a part of the abolition movement, you know, William Parker, David Ruggles, and all these men were as much or as central to abolition and deciding the the tactics and ideas of abolition as, as some of the other more well-known abolitionists that we hear about.
3: Okay. And as we end this, this uh, segment, we'll, we want to bring it back to Ruth Ginsburg and um, how all of it ties together as far as the Black Lives Movement and Ginsburg and Thurgood Marshall and the minority—we um, don't like to use that word—but the non-white justices that we've um, witnessed in, in since the existence.
2: Yeah, so it's it's uh, you know important to remember it's not sufficient to have just a non-white justice or a woman. You can have a non-white justice who turns out to be a disaster. For, mm-hmm. for Black rights and Black citizenship. Clarence Thomas is a standing example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why, you know, so far we have had, you know, we've had women in the court. The first one, Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, appointed by Reagan, was relatively uh, centrist and conservative in her views. Um, but then you had uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you had Elena Kagan, and you have Sonia Sotomayor, who have been, uh, really, uh, defenders of our democracy and the rights of the most disfranchised sections of our country. Um, so, at this point, we could very well get—you know—you can get a black person, and he could turn out to be Ben Carson. Um, you know, you could get a, a woman, and they could turn out to be Kellyanne Conway. You know, so it's not enough to have just—they should also believe in a policy, a program that empowers people, and that is broadly democratic and that serves everyone in the United States. Uh, And that's why I think it is so important to elect Biden and Kamala Harris in these next elections, because what they represent policy-wise programmatically is, you know, it's night and day the difference between them and the Republican Party. And the Republican Party has become very adept at following a very reactionary, revanchist agenda as far as race is concerned, and then propping up a few token Black people and women and saying, oh, we are not racist. We just follow these policies. Uh, And I think it's really important for most Americans, especially African Americans, to be very wary of this tactic and make sure that we end up with uh, a Supreme Court and with a justice who's actually qualified, one, because they have a tendency sometimes to nominate unqualified people or somebody who has the judicial temperament. Uh, Certainly Brett Kavanaugh showed in his hearings he had none of that, Um, you know, and who would be an impartial arbiter of the law uh, in the Supreme Court. We don't have that. Uh, And if we get another Supreme Court justice appointed by Trump, uh, which would completely change the balance of the court, that would be a disaster. And our only recourse would be the presidential elections and have the Democrats come and pack the court, you know, uh, increase the number of justices from nine uh, so that the conservatives don't completely undo the gains that we have made in the last few years. Mm -hmm. Um, Remember, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was appointed by President Clinton. On Hillary Clinton's behest, she is the one who brought Ruth Bader Ginsburg to her husband's attention. Uh, And I heard an interview with Hillary Clinton, and she also said that she feels um, that if we get a a justice who stands for everything that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was against, uh, we would, it would be a real threat to American democracy. Uh, In fact, Justice Ginsburg, her last words was that she really wished that uh, her replacement not be chosen or put in the court uh, until the new president is elected and inaugurated.
3: Mm -hmm. Yesterday, this is the very last question, I promise. Yesterday you mentioned Thurgood Marshall and you also made a comment on on my Facebook page about Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Explain.
2: So I really see them as trailblazers. Thurgood Marshall for African American Rights, you know, he had been in the NAACP legal defense front. Uh, He had actually, you know, it wasn't called that. He was part of the league at that time, the legal team of the NAACP. He was at the forefront uh, of uh, the fight for civil rights. And then he was appointed to the court. So he came with decades of experience of litigating for Black rights in the law. Similarly, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had that experience in terms of litigating for women's rights uh, before she came to the court. And interestingly, now she used the 14th Amendment protections that were there for former slaves to give them civil rights and use them for women. And so she pioneered in in that jurisprudence. So there's a lot of similarity between these two giants, these two liberal giants of the Supreme Court, uh, Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because they were appointed to the the court not as some kind of political favor. They were appointed because of decades of fighting for principles that they believed in. Uh, And it would be really nice to have another justice like them in the Supreme Court.
3: Wonderful, thank you so much. Professor, I really appreciate you coming on for two consecutive days and for um, being patient with me during my technical difficulties. So I really appreciate you and all that you do. No
2: Thank problem. You. Thank you so much for having me, Leslie. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.